1: All right, welcome to 755 Forever. I'm David O'Brien, Braves writer at The Athletic. I'm with my usual co-host, Eric O'Flaherty, former Braves reliever. What's up, Eric? What's up? Well, we got a good guest today, a special guest, the new Braves broadcaster. I know everybody's kind of eager to, to hear CJ do his calls because a lot of people haven't, you know, heard him when he was down with the Rangers. And uh, only us older folks remember CJ when he was uh, pitching for the Braves back in the day. Well, welcome, CJ. It's good to have you, man.
2: I was just gonna like imitate like an old person voice right there, make it seem like I was really old. But I know what you were getting at. Uh, Thank you. I remember when I pitched
1: for Bobby Cox.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I appreciate the introduction. Everybody has been so amazing. We're just uh, family's been uh, just blown away by everything, man. And we're just excited to get started.
1: And on the mound, out of Saint John's University. CJ Christopher John Nitkowski.
3: Six foot three, 190 pounder. Went to St. John's, as Wheels mentioned. He was the number one draft pick by the Cincinnati Reds in the June 94 draft.
1: First of all, hey, for everybody out there, I gave this website last week, but you guys, uh, if you're interested in sponsoring our show, 755 Forever Podcast. The numbers, 755 Forever Podcast at gmail.com. Tim Schovers is our uh, producer. Email him there let him know. And uh on our website, got all kinds of merch now for the first time. T-shirts, mugs, hats, pretty cool stuff. Even slides, shower shoes, sandals, whatever you want to call them. They're pretty cool though. So get over there. Anyway, now back to CJ, how you got here is kind of interesting to people, how you circled back to the Braves because here you are covering a uh broadcasting for the Rangers last year and you got us win a world series. So I think that probably was maybe a little tougher than it might have been to leave otherwise, but I know you wanted to get back here. You call home Atlanta. You have for some time now, right?
2: We have, yeah. We've been living here since 06, and we played here a little bit in 04, about half that season, and then we came back about a year and a half later and have called it home full-time since. I was in Texas for seven years, the first six team was below 500 by it was 124 games over those 6 years. They they weren't a good team. Not that it has anything to do with anything. And then they go out and of course they win that World Series. And yeah, a little bit of a joke in you know that you would leave after winning a, a World Series. I keep telling people I'm just chasing rings like after, you know, <laughs> years of losing <laughs> as a player I'm going to try to get some rings I don't deserve. And so, yeah, I'm all all about it. No, it is about being home. I was still under contract with the Rangers. I'm very forthright about kind of what was going on there with them. I still had a couple of years left. I absolutely loved working there. There was not a single team outside of the Atlanta Braves that I would have even entertained a conversation with about leaving the Rangers. And that's because, of course, we call this home. The icing on the cake is that this is an amazing organization uh, that is in such a great position to win. That's just kind of a bonus, quite honestly, for me. But they were good about it. When the opportunity came up, they weren't necessarily happy about it, but such a professional organization, much like they are here in Atlanta, that uh, they were cool about letting me go.
1: Was it the pull of what Oventbrill did during their few years in the Braves bullpen that wanted you wanted to be part of that greatness, that lingering greatness from the uh, Eric O'Flaherty and uh, Johnny Venters and Craig Kimbrell bullpen. Did that have anything to do with it or no?
2: I mean, the reality is you just <laughs> want to get more lefties in the booth. I know, obviously, Tom Gladman, one of the greats, but he doesn't work enough games. And, you know, a Frenchie, yeah. we all love Frenchie, but just trying to get more left-handers in broadcasting is really uh, what this is all about. And relievers, because I think maybe toward their career a little bit, there was more appreciation of what the non-closers did. But for a long time, there was almost zero uh, for the most part, as far as appreciation. So we're bringing relievers back. And uh, we're trying to be out in front as much as we possibly can. The non-closing relievers.
1: Eric's been bringing relievers back and sexy back for some time now. I told Eric he, he pitched at the wrong time because a uh, couple of years that he had when he had, he had the one year with a sub-one ERA. It was like a record at the time. Oh, yeah. Those guys now, those setup guys are making a ton of money, and they didn't make a whole – I mean, don't feel sorry for him. He's rich and all that. But what he would have made compared to now is uh, it's, it's not even comparable.
3: I think Scott Shields was the only setup man – that I knew the name of when I was a kid, you know, that was like a bonafide setup, man. Other than that, it was just about the closer.
2: Arthur Rhodes was a guy that stuck mm. out, you know, as I remember during my career, but I remember sitting in a bullpen and, you know, I, I pitched you the know, nineties into the early two thousands. And I remember sitting in the bullpen one time in Detroit and I'm watching Todd Jones's unbelievable gig. He has where he's getting a clean ninth inning every single time. He makes the most money by far. And I'm looking at me and Doug Brocale. And I'm like, man, I'm coming in facing Griffey with a tying run on second base, you know, in the seventh or eighth inning with zero margin for error. And Jonesy's getting a clean inning trying to hold down a three-run lead, and he's making way more money than I am. I'm like, something's not right about this. So it's good to see that finally they came around and figured it out.
1: And then back in the day, John Wetland and uh, Rivera were like the first two, what, really huge one-two combo. But that was rare. Nobody had. The Braves forever had a prominent closer but then just filled in the bullpen fungible each year, filled in the bullpen with low paid guys and usually hit on a few of them enough to have a good bullpen, but their starters went so deep in games that they didn't need to have more than three really good relievers they could rely on. That was it. It's all they ever needed.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I think if you believe in your system and the idea of getting the most out of guys, quite honestly, like we see the Tampa Bay race, I think certainly are known for that right now. It's like, who's the unknown. That's joining the Rays. That's going to dominate this year. That nobody really heard of the year before, right? And so I think for the Braves, and you know, certainly during the Leo years, you know, finding those one or two guys, bringing them in, supplement piece. And for the longest time, I joke about the lefties, the righties, the righty setup guys got abused forever for the longest time. Like just run them into the ground and move on to the next one. Back in the day when you know ninety-two to ninety-five was a good fastball, and not to say that those guys were growing on trees. But they would burn through them and then just kind of, you know, find the next one. I'm not saying the Braves, just the game in general.
1: Well, well the Braves uh, that's did. That's the reality.
2: It. <laughs> that's the reality of a, being yeah. a relief pitcher. At least it was.
1: Yep. Speaking of another one of your relievers that's in the booth, we've talked about Moilo coming back from TJ surgery. Now he like led the league in appearances the year <laughs> after TJ surgery. <laughs>
3: and he came back at like 10 months or something. He was oh, ahead my. of schedule and then pitched yeah. in 80 something games.
2: Yeah, no empathy either. Like just get back out there. And that was the life. I always said, and once I picked up on this, for those that are old Metallica fans, that, you know, relievers are disposable heroes. I mean, they really are, right? Your non closers, especially think about Scott Proctor as an example, as a guy who was a really good right handed arm and couldn't get away from Joe Torrey, it seemed like. And, you know, there's just certain guys that unfortunately, Ricky Stone was another one during my era where you just, you're throwing a lot of games, Paul Quantrill, it's just kind of the way that it is. And you do your best to survive.
3: We were happy to do it though. At least I was. You know, I mean, there was a sense of pride in being able to throw that many games and be ready every day. Long term, it didn't work out. But at the time, it's, it was like a badge of honor you could wear of, I'll go four in a row or both games of a doubleheader. I was always proud of that.
2: You're right. And, I, and I, I'm with you on that one. And then I look back and I'm like, man, I watched some other guys. Like I watched guys that have come out of injury. I'll use my buddy Danny Patterson as an example, former Ranger. When he got to Detroit, he kind of paced himself and he was not afraid to ask for a day off. And he was rewarded with a really nice two-year deal.
3: Yeah. Josh Hader.
2: Yeah. I'm like, you know what? I'm good. Like, you know, Phil Garner for a while who I had as a manager come to me and maybe it's three days in a row. I'll never forget this one day We're at Yankee Stadium and he's like, how do you feeling today? He knew I was, you know, middle of summer. It's getting late. I said, I can get you a hitter day if you need me. Could come in and just face one lefty and get out of there. I gave up the two runners at were on base and then four more of my own in that game. And I was furious. I was, I didn't handle it particularly well, but the reality was, is I was shot. I was worn out. I wasn't hurt. I was just tired. And a lot of other guys would take those days. I'm like, nope, I can do it. I can do it. And sometimes to a fault.
1: You got a kid that's uh, playing ball in high school, right? He
2: does, yeah. So we're we're in Cherokee County. So he's at Creekview High School. He's a sophomore. I have an older one who's graduated from Georgia College. My daughter's at UGA right now as a senior. She's all excited. She just texts us because uh, Kendall Jenner is, I guess, pushing a. Tequila that they'll be serving tonight at her bar, and apparently Kendall Jenner is going to be there, so she's pretty excited to be in Athens tonight and working at the bar that she works at. But yeah, so we have three. But yeah, my youngest one, I think will have a chance to play in college. He loves the game. He's actually homesick today, but uh, he he loves the game. Infielder, pitcher, swings left, throws right, and um, it's fun, man. You know, having kids and going through this is is fun. It can be stressful at the same time, but uh, I, I enjoy it.
1: This must be great for you when spring training is just around the corner. And in the past, you're probably thinking, okay, I've only got like another month or so before I have to head down to Texas. And then you're going back and forth and coming home, I would imagine on occasional times you had off, but now you'll be here and just commuting from Cherokee County?
2: Yep. So it was about 10 days a month that I would have off on average with the Rangers. I was doing about 105 games with them. They're all road games.
1: And the family's back here.
2: So I was basically on the road for, you know, yeah, 135 nights a year. And I didn't really think much about it. It's like, you know what, you do what you got to do. You grind through it. Great organization, all those kind of things. And it started weighing on me a little bit this past year. You know, quite honestly, not to be too somber, but, you know, I was thinking about Jim Poole, thinking about Tim Wakefield, you know, two guys that were from my era that passed away this year or last year, and they were only 57 years old. I'm like, man, I'm 50 years old and they were in perfect health when they were 50, you know, and I think I'm in pretty decent health. And I'm like, you know what, man, I'm starting to have these kind of, you know, life thoughts about big picture stuff. And, you know, was there an adjustment to be made? And I wasn't even actively pursuing something else necessarily just happened to work out where the job opened up. So yeah, that part of it and being home more, catch more games, all that kind of stuff is going to be fun. I will say my oldest at his high school, they were looking for volunteers to do the PA, like to announce the players, you know, play the music, announce the players. I said to him yesterday, I was like, Hey man, I was like, coach is looking for some guys. He's like, please don't just, please don't
1: please. Like I I get it. You're
2: here. Like he wants the least amount of attention as possible on all of us. And so even though I technically I'm a professional broadcaster, uh, he prefer I not be the PA guy at his high school games.
1: Yeah. You got one of those names that now you're doing the Braves games. Anybody that's not aware of who his father is, is probably going to know pretty soon.
2: He ain't having it. He's a good kid, but he's like, he just preferred like, let's just stay in the background. Let me do my thing.
1: Yeah, so you're you're away all that time and you're thinking, you know, what if I god forbid, you know, had a stroke tomorrow? You know, you're not going to be like, "Okay, I'm glad I was working all this time accumulating money. I could have been home with my family and now you're going to be there and
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, quite honestly like, you know, my dad passed a couple of years ago when he got sick, right? It's in the middle of the season and you're dealing with that. Same thing with my wife's father, unfortunately, his last couple of years so we're dealing have been dealing with some of that and not always being here an emergency at home medical, maybe for somebody in the family. And it it could still happen, obviously. We're still on the road a good amount. But yeah, you start to get older, man. Like I said, I'll be 51 in March. You get on the other side of 50 and you just start kind of thinking about those things just a little bit more you know, and seeing some sad things that happen. And of course, we never know. I, I might make it to 90. I might make it to 52. I don't know. But at the end of the day, yeah, if you can afford to make some changes and opportunities pop up to be home more, I'm all about it.
1: So, what's this going to be like for you? the Last year must have been great in so many regards. I mean, you guys won the World Series, and also you got to work with uh, Boch. I mean, you're going from Bruce Boachy to a guy that I think, to me, Snit, I'm sure you've had a chance to meet Snit by now. To me, Brian Snitker is a little bit of Bruce Boachy and a lot of Bobby Cox. He's kind of that guy, players manager. Impossible not to like when you get to meet him. So, it must be great for a guy in your shoes who's going to have to, I don't know if you do pregame shows or whatever, but... To interact with a manager who's so himself every day. he day, doesn't get wound up in the losses and act like an asshole one day and the <laughs> next day, you know. I mean, yeah. Smith is always pleasant. You never know that if they've won three, if they lost a series in Oakland like they did last year, or if they've won 10 in a row. The guy's the same every day. And I would imagine Boach is a little like that, too, at this point of his career, right? I mean, he's not going to get real flustered by things.
2: He is. Yeah. You know, I tell people all the time I was fortunate. Or maybe I don't know how you look at it or unfortunate. All the bouncing around I did, I played for 40 different managers around the world, which is insane. But some of them for like a minute, but you know, just a bunch of different guys over the years. And, you know, Bruce Boche I never obviously played for him, but he slides right up there. I always tell you know, everybody, I'm not just saying this because I've worked for the Braves now. I say this for years. Bobby is, is at the top of that list of the 40 that that I played for. And, you know, seeing Bochy and how he operates. A lot of similarities there, no doubt. The same thing is going to be the case with uh, Snit. You know, obviously, he's a baseball lifer. He gets it. You know, how do we wave it—the new school and the old school—without leaning one way or the other too heavily? But it feels a little old school, which I'm kind of excited about. And that's also how Bruce Bochy was. You know, the thing that stuck out more than anything I keep telling people with Bochy was that how resolute he was in making decisions about pitching changes. You know, everyone always talked about how great he was with the bullpen. He did not have an easy bullpen to work with. You know, as much as the Rangers got it together at the right time. During the season, it was, you know, white knuckle the whole time. And so watching him at times, like he would see it right away and there was zero hesitation. He was not going to be that manager, like, you know what? Let me see if CJ can get out of this. You know, I know he's been working hard. Nope. If you didn't have it, you were gone. Somebody was up. He made that decision. He looked pissed every time he was making it that you weren't getting it done. I really appreciated that about watching him. I know sometimes it, you know, maybe it would tick guys off and it didn't matter who you were. You know, once they picked up Araldus Chapman last year, and there was times where, man, he could be unbelievable at 101 with a two-seamer. And there was times where he sprained it all over the place. And Boach picked up on it quicker than I think any manager I've ever seen and had somebody backing him up, no matter if there was a lefty, a righty up, didn't matter. As soon as he realized he didn't have it, he got him out of there. He probably hates the three-batter minimum rule because there was times he'd have oh, to yeah. win a little bit. But he was great. And I, no doubt that's going to be the same way.
1: Yeah, nothing bothers Snit like walks. And, I mean, at times he had to live with them. But... If he knew that he had enough guys in his pen that he could make a move, he didn't hesitate to get a guy out of there and a starter and pull a guy starter, especially a younger starter who's not proven himself. He would jerk a guy in the second inning sometimes, you know, if he if he was running. If he knew that day, and you'd ask him afterwards, and he goes, "Because I didn't feel like there was any sign that it was going to get better," so he'd get him out of there.
2: And it's funny on the pitch selection stuff, too. There was a game last year. Will Smith actually stepped up really big for the Rangers, like the first four months of the year. He was really important. I know he struggled down the stretch a little bit, but he was critical. They don't have the year they have without what he did at the very beginning of the year. But he let up a a walk-off home run to Patrick Bailey of the Giants, and it was a fastball in. Which was kind of surprising that they would go into a righty with a chance. You know, it's kind of that old adage to try not to finish a game in, especially with him with his heater, right? His sliders, his go-to pitch, and so he basically got beat on. I'll say his worst pitch, but not his strength. And Boach was furious. That one felt like it lasted maybe about a day or so. Where he, I think he was mad at Jonah Hyde. He was mad at Will, at Will Smith for the you know the decision that they made. So there's still some of that there at times when maybe you start getting a little bit too cute. Which I think all the old school guys, you know will be like that anyway where some of the newer school guys who are relying on data seem to be a little bit maybe more patient and let things go but I like seeing that once in a while it's good to have that fire and then like you said eventually everybody's over it and it's usually over a bottle of wine on the plane
1: have you been as impressed as we have by this uh a the bullpen that Alex Anthopoulos has put together I mean he's gone after the Phillies really I don't know how much of it was the Phillies pitching, but it was a lot. They brought in so many guys, throwing upper 90s, 100. And, uh, and the Braves, I mean, they had four extra base hits and eight runs in that four-game NLDS. And some of that, I think, was the break before that. But, you know, Velo was the key for those guys. And this year, the Braves had had a few guys that had options or they could have brought back, and they let those guys go. And he went, he's going with these power arms from left and right. And this bullpen, I think, potentially – is the deepest in the league if not if not in the majors. I mean, it's a if these guys are healthy, it's going to be a fantastic bullpen.
2: Yeah, absurdly deep, right? We saw the news, of course. I know you guys know that Ken Giles is going to come in as a non-roster, which is a cool story and hope he makes it. But as a non-roster, this is not a great bullpen and necessarily come I, in and try to make, right? That's the downside the downside. He's got of confidence
1: it. in himself, he, that does, he?
2: does. It'll be fun to watch, and he's certainly been a character in the past. I tell you, of all the arms, and I'm with you, this bullpen is ridiculously deep. Having Tyler Matzik back, I think, obviously, will be really big and exciting, good story. But the guy that I kind of have my eye on, and maybe because I'm just trying to look for that one guy that maybe people aren't talking about as much, is Aaron Bummer. Because Aaron Bummer, to me, seems like he's going to play such a critical role because he's going to be the guy that's taking on all those inherited runners. Right, I think I, it was 42 last year, far and away more than any other Brave had. I know it wasn't here, but just kind of comparing what he did last year because of that amazing ground ball rate that he has. And so because this bullpen runs so deep, my guess is he's going to be asked to put out a lot of fires Early on, you can afford to be conservative with your starters. Obviously, there's some injury history with a couple of guys and a little bit, you know, a couple of guys that are a little bit older, but because of the depth of the bullpen, I think Aaron Bummer is the guy that at certain times, if they're not blowing a team out early, like I know they did so often last year and need to keep a game close and even as early as the fifth or sixth inning, it feels like more often than not. He's probably going to be the guy that's asked to do it if it's a double play situation. If you need a, a swing and miss, then maybe you go in a different direction. But I think Aaron Bummer, to me, could end up being really key. And again, maybe he'll get the credit. Maybe he won't. But for those of us who know, we will certainly appreciate what he's probably doing in those middle innings.
1: I think that was a great move because Mentor has had to shoulder so much of the load. And he's done a great job with it. But like last year, he had a month where he struggled. And he was the guy they had to bring into any tight situation. And sometimes when it wasn't that tight, because they didn't have other lefties at the time. But between Mentor, this is going to ease the burden on him, and Matzik coming back from TJ, they're not going to have to rush Matzik in there. You're not going to have to throw him right into the fire early. I know Matzik's going to want to. But having Bummer I think, is going to be huge for that, for both of those guys. Having these three lefties now, potentially even more than that. And we haven't even talked about Dylan Lee.
2: Yeah. And Ray Kerr. Chris Jimenez, I work with him on MLB Network Radio, former catcher. And I guess, you know, he's still getting down. And I guess they're in the same area because he's caught some of his bullpens. And he was like, dude, where do you see this dude? Again, sounds great. I um, mean, you know, things happen as we all know what happens, you know, how things over the course of the season and spring training, who breaks camp, who doesn't. But they have depth of even people that probably most fans don't know who they are.
1: Yeah, a guy like Kerr, people are just dismissed. It was such a relatively minor move in the offseason that everybody's focused on the big ones. But they've done some things that... uh that's going to come to the fore, I think, as the season goes on. The going, people are going to be like, we have him too. And guys <laughs> coming back in mid-season. They got a lot of guys lined up. And then the guy from the Pittsburgh, the hard thrower, who's going to miss this year, but be ready and have three years, I think, of contractual control. They took him because the Pirates didn't want to have a guy on the roster. They're paying to, to rehab. And the Braves were like, we'll do it. So, I mean, they got arms, arms.
2: Yep. It's going to be deep. It's going to be fun to watch. And I think on both sides. You know, obviously you guys have seen this team a lot more than I have, but even the young starters, like I'm really excited to see Waltrip in spring training. Their first round pick last year out of Florida. Like he looks that like he might be. Split is
1: amazing, man.
2: Yeah. He looks That's like nasty. he may be the real deal. He blew through what, four levels last year. You know, again, probably not a spot to break camp, but between him and AJ, and you know, there's pitching depth here too on, on the starting side.
1: I think we'll probably see Waltrip by early summer. The Braves have not hesitated to bring a guy up if they thought he was ready and that he could help them win. They did it with Soroka the year. They brought him from AA, uh, you know, f- to face the Mets in a big game up there early in the season. So, But they don't have to. That's the cool thing is they got so much depth. They don't have to rush this guy at all. smith Shaver they don't have to rush him. I mean, we've talked about the guys that got coming back to have an all-star. People forget how good he was until midseason when he just ran out of gas. And he's fighting for the fifth spot.
2: I know it's crazy with that nasty sinker, man. I, you know, I've gone back and watched a lot of you know starts or all the guys and watching a lot of games. And my goodness, that sinker's amazing. Something you just said there, though, that, that kind of triggered something else too for me. And thinking about what you said about you know putting a guy in a big spot, you are not afraid to do it, not afraid to call a guy up. That was another kind of Bruce Bochy thing that caught my attention last year. And again, the old school guys that you know, if you're on a contender, they're not worried about giving you a soft landing and making your life easy. Like they need to find out quickly: can I count on you? And Boach did that a couple of times. Rookie reliever he brought up, first appearance, time runs on second base. Like, it's just right in the fire. Cody Bradford, who was a lefty, I believe he made his first big league start against the Braves. You know, a lefty against the Braves. Like, here you go. Here's your debut. Go get them. Good luck. I remember that. They don't care. And I, and I said that they don't care. Of course they care. But they're contenders. And they're saying, I want to find out right now. We're not bringing guys up. We're not a rebuilding team. Obviously, the Braves are in that same spot. I think Snit is cut out of that same mold. It's like, listen, we're here to contend. We're here to win. I, I need to find out pretty quickly. Can I count on you?
1: Yeah. Snit got that, I think, a lot from both his minor league background and from Bobby Cox, who Bobby was all famous for doing that. He brought a guy up. You knew that guy was getting in that day. He'd bring a position player up. The guy would be in the lineup that night. They didn't want a guy sitting around thinking about it, getting nervous or whatever. Just throw him in there and let it. him you know. And I think a lot of that now is having confidence in your player development, which the Braves do. They have confidence that when a guy's – when their minor league director and their managers down there tell Snit he's ready, they believe him, and they bring the guy up. Like they did with Michael Harris. Brought him straight from A. People were like, really? It was early in the season, end of May. Brought him up, thrust him in the lineup at center field.
2: And then you don't have to wear that MLB debut patch too long. eric have you seen that they got that little patch on there where you basically wear it until you (laughs) until you make your debut it's almost like hey here's a rookie everybody just so you know this guy's never been in a game (laughs) and you can't take that patch off until you actually get in a game
3: well that's not necessary
1: (laughs) (laughs) three months later they give harris a hundred million dollar contract potentially a hundred million because he earned it anyway yeah you talked about uh Giles, it's going to be interesting to see him in spring because he threw for a bunch of teams a couple of weeks ago and was 93, 94, 95, I think up to 96 maybe. The Braves think with him healthy and throwing and with their guys and working, they think he might be able to add a tick or two to that. And if he does, he's going to get up close to what he used to be. He could be a potential impact guy for them if he's – I mean, if he can get back close to what he was before. He was. I how man. anybody
3: throws with with their. You never really reach your peak velo outside of games. You know, I mean that you're on a. A lot of times these showcases, you're on a uh, indoor mound. You don't have cleats on, so your traction is not as good. All those little things affect it. You don't have adrenaline. And for me, when I was pitching until a hitter stepped in the box. A hitter getting in the box gave me three or four miles an hour every time. Even if you looked at your warm up pitches, you know you kind of peak when you come into the game. I feel pretty good today. Be eighty seven. And shit, and you know, now I'm in trouble. Then your first pitch when a hitter gets in there is 92. So he could easily gain.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'll be curious now, you know, we're kind of forced to go down these paths. I I like some of the period where we had less information for a while. But, you know, the reality is, is that now we know, Okay, even if it is 94, 95. What else is going with it? I don't mean the off-speed pitches, but what are the other numbers in there that these teams are looking at, whether it's you know the vertical break, attack angle, whatever it is. and I do enough to make sure I know what you guys are talking about or what they're talking about, but I do think for what it's worth on broadcast, there's a balance in there of making sure we're just not hitting people over the head. But if it's something significant that the team is focused on, and I'll be curious with Ken Giles if there's metrics to his fastball that they really like, then I think it's probably worth mentioning. So I think to me, that is, I'm as curious about that part as I am, whether or not he gets a couple of more ticks, which I'm with Eric. I think he'll easily get that in spring. Cause there's just something about doing those bullpens inside. I mean, nothing compares to looking at a, a hitter, trying to take you deep in the box.
1: Yep. Your job's kind of like, uh, I think mine is when you're writing for a certain audience, you're reaching a mainstream audience that ranges from, you know, people in their teens to people in their eighties that have been our nineties that have been following the Braves forever and you have to be, like you say, you can't beat them over the head with metrics. Even if you know exactly what some of these metrics are and think that it might be able to help some really hardcore people that are into that, you got to kind of uh, balance it, right?
2: We do. Yeah. And I think it's always a work in progress. The reality is you're never going to make everybody happy. I don't, you know, maybe Vince Scully had a hundred percent approval rating, but he might have been the only one. And even, and even then you never know. That's just the reality of our business. And
1: Skip Carey here back in the day.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I always, you know, I try to, you know, do the best I can with that. I always feel like if I cannot explain it really quickly and really easily, just let it go. Because right? there are some great numbers out there that obviously we see it all over the internet. Organizations use them to build their rosters that just don't translate well into a conversation on television. When you're a column, yeah, you have a little bit more time to kind of explain it. I think that matters. But if we can't get to it quickly, like a lot of the run value numbers for me, I just I feel like it just doesn't compute to a broadcast, uh, and I just can't do it.
1: And weighted runs and all that. Great stats, but it's hard to explain to some people.
2: Exactly. It's not a knock and the numbers either. You know, quite honestly, it's just a matter of we're still trying to entertain people, keep them engaged. And when this team is as good as it is, you don't need it, right? Those first six years when the Rangers were always under 500 and having 100 lost seasons in there. Yeah, we had to work a little harder, dig a little bit deeper. Here's why actually, I know this guy's hitting 190, but let me tell you why it's actually better than got like, You know, I had to do it where you don't have to do it when the team is good. It was really nice last year just to be able to actually call the games on the field and stay focused there. But I just, I try to stay, you know, current as much as possible, but again, hopefully not boring the crap out of people.
3: Yeah. When you can just say he's got 30 and a hundred, that's, that's a pretty simple route. You know, you don't need to dive in.
1: How much are you looking forward to working with Brandon? Cause I got to tell you, man, this guy's good. The nights when I'm not at the ballpark and I watch the games, he's an entertaining listen. And he's like, like you said, he keeps it entertaining the storytelling, the jokes, I mean, he's got a little edge to him. He's like, you got to be careful with some of the things he says. He might set you up, man. But he's, uh, he's got some humor. He's, he's a funny dude and very entertaining. Great voice
2: great voice balance of like having the confidence as a guy walking into a huge booth the first time but then also the humility right He thought he balanced that really well uh entertaining funny went back and watched uh, a lot of the games certainly wasn't intimidated by being in that booth and uh we'll have some fun for sure you know we've gotten together a couple times already when we went to Braves Fest they moved it inside obviously because of the rain and so we did a little bally's thing that was on the concourse where uh Nick and Trevor had, you know were there for 45 minutes and people would come by and take pictures and then Brandon and I did it I was overwhelmed. First of all, people were really nice. Like I keep saying, I I really couldn't believe, like, welcome me, all this stuff. It was great. But the reaction to Brandon, I mean, I felt like I was with Elvis because then once we'd left and we had to walk somewhere else, it's like a crowd. People were stopping him. I'm just kind of watching. I'm like, this is amazing that he pulled this off in one year in such a big time booth where it's so important to these fans. Like I went through it when I got to Texas. Tom Grieve had been the main analyst. Tom Grieve played for the Rangers. He was their GM. He worked in the front office. And then he's been in the booth at that point. It was almost 25 years. He literally is Mr. Ranger. And here I come taking over the lead role, and he's going to step back. Some of the old timers were not happy about that. It was really obvious. It took me a couple of years to kind of warm some of them up. And one of the greatest compliments I felt like I ever get was, you know, I really didn't like you when you first got here, but I've really grown to like it. Now I'm going to miss you. To me, that's uh, that one feels good. But so I know what it's like. And, you know, same thing here with Frenchie, so beloved by this group. I'm glad he's still sticking around. Everybody kind of knows why he's backing off here a little bit, but I'm excited to jump in uh, with Brandon. There was one game that I was watching early in the season. I already busted his balls about it, where he had his Tommy Boy references mixed up. Uh, they were talking about Black Sheep. He was saying Black Sheep was supposed to be Tommy Boy. I love that stuff. And I almost love when either I or my partner gets it wrong, then gets it right, because then it's just ball busting time and probably for the rest of the year when it seems the right time to bring it up again. So I love mistakes as much as I love getting it right.
1: He had a couple of lines last year that people were like, Whoa, did he say that? And it was hilarious. But the one with uh what Mastrabone, was oh, that yeah. the guy and that came Johnson. up quite a bit at the fan fest, <laughs> but at the brace the one fest. That came in. It was like you couldn't have scripted this for him to let and he said, and it's probably a good thing the Frenchie's in the other booth.
2: Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> was and not scared to do it too. Like that's no. the thing. You may come in knowing there was a change, and of course, you want to be the guy the team wants you to be. That that matters. I tell people all the time, of course, you want to have the approval of the fans, but the things that matter most are what do your bosses at the Braves think? What do your bosses at Ballas think? Like, those are the people that are going to decide whether or not you're going to continue to be in that booth. And so, yeah, you, you know, first year in, not afraid to take a chance and have some fun, and he crushed it.
1: Right away, he did. Well, he did one of those in the first month of the season. It was like, wow. First week it might have been. I forget what it was, but it was one of those that was like, Whoa. Now, I'd say that, but I would, I'm not doing games <laughs> of ballet, but yeah, it's really good. And I mean, you got the guys that you got to have come around too that can do occasional stints in there. I mean, like Glavin coming in there and Chipper obviously is around with s e as an assistant hitting coach and all that. So that's gotta be pretty cool. I mean, they, they're a good organization. I think as far as staying connected with their with the greats, because so many of them live down here. And if not, they pass through and, uh, It's a good atmosphere there from afar. Like the Braves went there last year and played up in Texas from afar. What's been your perception of this Braves team and the thing they have going now and what they've been able to do and and how they're sitting for now in the future.
2: Yeah. That's the thing that jumps out. Right. I mean, the way that they there's risk involved, but the way that they've gone forward with locking up players. And I think I remember, I remember John or somebody having the conversation like, well, of course there's no way they're all going to work out. Right. You can't take that many chances and do a bunch of these, you know, team friendly deals. Obviously, some of them are still pretty expensive, and they're all going to hit. And I don't know if I could pick the one that's not going to work right now with any confidence.
1: So far, they all are. I mean,
2: yeah, it's really kind of nuts. I mean, of course, the guy's going to have a bad year. Of course, the guy's going to get hurt and miss some time. But that's all kind of built into the risk that you take. So I think that part of it, in particular, I had to uh, interview Alex in front of some corporate sponsors. Alex Anthopoulos. One of the first things I did here for the Braves, and we were talking. I, was, I brought that up, and I mistakenly said, and I said, you know, you have. You have Ronald under control for what, four more years? And I swear, he, I mean, like five, like he went, it was like a, a half a second. He was like, no, five more years. Still like, trap you think mind, about,
1: it, man, that guy.
2: Yeah. How important it is. And obviously, I mean, that's like saying one of your children is three years younger than they really are, whatever it is, like getting something significantly wrong. But just to go to show you, like, obviously how much that means to them. And, you know, that he's a perfect example, right? He would have been a free agent at the end of this year. And he'd been walking into a $400 million contract. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. And instead, he's going to be a brave for four more years after this one, at least, which is incredible. So that part sticks out. The depth of lineup, obviously, pretty obvious one, but a big one to sit there and watch it and the damage. And I I saw it last year with the Rangers. That was probably one of the deeper lineups that I've ever watched on on an everyday basis. And so seeing that now, and this one even probably, quite honestly, a little bit better. And then to see what happens here with Kelnick. I mean, that's the thing that I think is going to be most interesting is how he fits in.
1: Yeah, you saw him quite a bit, right?
2: Yeah, we did. Saw him a lot in Seattle. Uh, saw a guy that's got all the talent in the world. I felt like he would grind like crazy, be really hard on himself. He seemed to me, and just from the outside, and probably not fair to say until you, you really ask, but you try to make these evaluations. And he'd look like a guy that never gave himself credit for when he did something well, but beat himself up and everything he did wrong, like in a bad way. You could see it on his face. And what he did last year, his first 45 games were incredible. And the that's next was 45 you about. was brutal. You saw him doing yeah, that's that yeah, and then that second forty-five, he fell apart, and then he kicked the cooler. And uh, you know, he learned from it. So to ask what he did those first forty-five, the whole year is asking a lot. I think he had ten home runs over that time. OPS was over nine hundred. But I did in our little bold predictions, I was like, this guy could hit thirty. You know, you mentioned thirty and a hundred before. I'm like, he could do it, especially in this lineup if he's sitting near the bottom. Yeah, so that's exciting to see what could be as good as they are. It could almost be better. And uh, there's just not a hole. I don't see a hole in his team.
1: How about Kelnick going from? I know they have, they have a superstar over there, too, in Seattle. But still, especially early on when, that, when he was struggling, Kelnick was kind of carrying the offense. And he was batting cleanup over there. Golden child, biggest bonus ever from the, in the organization. How about going from that to going over here, he's going to be hitting the bottom third of the lineup. He's really going to have no pressure except what he puts on himself, which I know he will put some on himself. But nobody's expecting him to come in. People honestly here, Brace fans, would be happy if this guy hits 280 with 20 home runs given the rest of their lineup. And he could do a lot better than that. But how much is that going to help him not having that pressure and coming over here and, and, uh, and just being able to be a piece of this lineup and not be a, uh, a guy that they're putting the weight on his shoulders?
2: Yeah, I think it'll be big. I mean, obviously, you mentioned having J-Rod there. I, I always looked at that dynamic, too. It was kind of fascinating, right? Because Kellnick, obviously, was kind of supposed to be on that same path. And Julio Rodriguez ran with it, becomes kind of one of these faces of baseball. He gets the big contract. And Kelnick faded in the background a little bit. Then he started to emerge last year and then he faded again. Right. It's all these up and down, up and down. Of course, we know how difficult it is to play this game at a high level consistently. But I do think there is a mental component for him. Not that to say it's going to completely go away here with the Braves. I don't think that's the case, but I do think there's the opportunity for a big relief because he's not going to be having so much of that weight, at least from a team standpoint. Now it becomes to me internally, how much are you putting on on yourself, right? I just saw that he retweeted MLB's top 10 like breakout players of the year, and he was on that list and he retweeted it like excited to get going, right? Which is cool, but that still tells me he's putting some really big expectations on himself. and And so managing that properly, listen, it's the battle for every big leaguer. Uh, and trying to figure that part out. And if he's if he's around the right guys and who knows who that'll be, maybe he had that in Seattle, maybe he didn't. But thinking about whether it's coaches or teammates that can help kind of walk him through that a little bit and maybe eliminate the super highs and the super lows and get a little bit more steady, that happens. We'll see the best version of him.
3: Don't ride the roller coaster. That was the best advice I got early in my career. Just come to the field, be the same every day. You have a great game. Don't get too high on yourself. If you have a bad one, you're going to have time to fix it. But the guys that Like if you watched Julio, when he came up, he had a terrible first month or two and he's kind of getting some tough calls in the zone. He smiled through it all. And soon enough, things click if you keep that positive attitude. I just think that's the hardest battle for young players is not to get too wrapped up in the outside noise and your current stock of that day. Just stay steady. And he's got all the talent in the world. So I think if he's with this good group here, he can turn it off.
1: He's already got a thing going with Austin Riley because they got this background as hunters. They both love hunting. That's all they do in the offseason. And I think Austin Riley's a perfect guy to talk to because Austin had that terrible couple of months when he first came up. He was great the first month, and then he people started making adjustments to him. He struggled, got hurt. Then he comes back, and he's been – I mean, the last three or four years, he's just been one of the best hitters in the league. And I think him, Matt Olson, Darno – Hell, I think Marcelo Zuna is going to be able to help him. All the guys talk about him is how much he's able to help guys with a little bit of a a pep talk here and there because he's been through some struggles. But I think he's going to have any number of guys in that locker room in that clubhouse that are going to be able to help him. And being flanked by Michael Harrison's center, he's not going to have a lot of pressure to to get to some of those balls in the gaps and all that kind of thing. I mean, that outfield... With Acuna, Harris, and Kelnick, if Kelnick plays like he did anywhere close to what he did in the first 45 games, that's going to be the best outfield in the league, if not the majors.
3: Yeah, and Snit will keep rolling him out there, too.
2: Yeah,
1: and they all can play center field. All can play center field, yeah. Yeah.
2: Hey, you know what I found amazing in my little bit of research that I'm sitting there playing catch up the best I possibly can? That Marcelo Zuna is the only one on the Braves' outfield with a gold glove uh, in the outfield or on that roster.
1: That's, he's, he's, that's great. And I, haven't even, and
2: you're like, I haven't even pointed who has, who's that out the myself. the only brave that has a, a gold glove in the outfield? It's Marcelo Zuna, the one guy you are probably not going to put in the outfield. No,
1: he's not getting anywhere near the outfield. <laughs> Sorry, several injuries. He's more likely to play first base this year. He wants to play some first base, and they might be allowed. They might be able to give Olsen one or two days off. But even that, I mean. It's like Olson wants to play every day. He showed last year after going through a lull, he got caught fire again, and look what he did. But it's so hard for Snit. Once those guys get past a certain point in the season, it's so hard for Snit to give them a day off unless they're just really bottoming out, you know, really struggling. But it's like, okay, I've played 100 games. You're not going to take me out of the lineup now just for a random rest day. But Ozuna played a lot of infield there last year, took a lot of ground balls at first. And we asked Snit one time late in the season, really late in the season. So if you need to give Olsen a day, can I could, no, uh, can Azuna <laughs> play for, no, <laughs> now next year, maybe we'd take him up to Dunedin and he gets in a game that yeah, maybe that'll happen at spring training, but now no, but he's worked really hard to try to get some innings at first base. I
2: mean, I admire it, but I do think, you know, being out there every day, especially in Atlanta is a challenge. Like the Rangers last year with Marcus oh, yeah. Simeon, right? That was his thing. That was Marcus Simeon's thing and hitting at the top of the lineup And no doubt, and he's a little bit older, not old, but he's a little bit older than the guys we're talking about, but we would see him fade just a little bit, you know, and he kind of struggled through the postseason and they're playing indoors, right? I mean, they're indoors at home. They're indoors when they're in Houston. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, for the most part, temperature controlled for the Rangers. And I I remember watching and thinking about, I would never say this to him, but I'm like, you know what, perhaps next year they pick, you know, a day or two or three here where they just give him that little bit of a breather.
1: I'm wondering about that too. I th- I'm wondering if Snit, when they've, re- when they've evaluated everything that maybe possibly contributed to their demise in the second consecutive NLDS, that has to have come up in the meetings with the coaches and all that. I mean, uh, Snit is as old school, hardcore players manager as he is, and he listens and also wants to play every day, and he's done it several times now. But you got to wonder if they look at that and go, what if we give you, if we just tell you beforehand? So you're not set on playing 162. Then maybe, you know, two months into the season, we give you a off. Then we give you, so we give you four or five during the year and you know ahead of time. And it's not like you have this streak going in the back of your head. You got to play every day. I think they could benefit from it too. I don't see, I don't see anything gained by playing 162 instead of say 158.
2: Cal record safe.
1: You know,
3: that's how you put up your numbers. I always heard position players talk about that. You know, this might be the day I hit two homers. I want to be out there every day, but I think it definitely, you know, it piles up and especially playing in Atlanta in that heat, you know, yeah, you, you may you not feel tired, man. but yeah,
2: it catches up.
1: Some of those day games. Yeah. I'm surprised they did it. Every one of those guys, even Acuna, although he didn't have a long stretch at all, but every one of those guys had a little blip in the season last year where they, for a week or two weeks, Olson's was like three weeks where they were terrible. And you gotta wonder if maybe you know it, been, it would have been they could have benefited from a day or two off. There, he gave Austin, I think, a day or two off. He got banged up one time, but you know, for the most part, Snit. If they want to play every day, Snit kind of gives them that leeway. And I think maybe he needs to take that into account this year and say, hey,
3: especially when you're comfortable in the division. You know, I think it's it's different if you if you're chasing if you're down a game or up two games, but if you have a five to ten game lead, it's not going to hurt.
2: It's interesting. I, I'd be curious how the guys would react or at some point, maybe as you get a little bit older, you know, who's the guy that's going to have that that conversation? I, you know, it certainly benefited guys like, you know, Andrew McCutcheon as he gets a little bit older and, and other stars in the game that you know, at some point, I don't know if it, you know, I don't think it's a pride thing. I get it. You want to be out there. And I thought you bring up a good point. You just never know which day is going to be the day. And if you're going well, that's the other part of like the pre. Like you don't want to with, sit. Yeah, a few years ago with the Rangers, they were, it was basically pre-programmed. Like, all right, we're going to, you know, think in a week or two out, he'll get this day off. It looks like we're facing this left. it will get that day off. What if the guy's on fire?
1: Yeah, and comes back not on fire. Yeah. <laughs> you got to use your instincts as a manager, I think, to give him those days off. But a day game after a night game sometimes when it's uh, 98 degrees here in Atlanta. One other thing was uh, Charlie Culberson. And what's your thoughts on this guy at age 34, trying to move from utility infielder, outfielder, Kind of like we talked about Giles picked the wrong team to try to make the bullpen. How about Culberson? is trying to become a reliever. I know why he did it because he lives here like you. He's got his wife and kids. He can go between AAA and, and Major League Park and commute to either one. But what do you think his chances? This guy's you're not your typical position player when he pitched in those eight games over the last five years. And you got to know him in Texas, I'm sure. But through 93, maybe topped out 94 as a position guy in, on the mound. What do you think... Uh, the chances of a guy doing that at age 34, I think he's going to be 35 in April.
2: Yeah. So everybody pulling for him because he's like the greatest guy in the world. I know how much Braves fans love him. Same thing in Texas and the idea of even just going to AAA and being close by, if that's what it takes and seeing how it goes for a month and finding out whether or not uh, it could be real. I love the competitive part of it for him. Uh, he was on a radio show yesterday. I wasn't working. I'm like, really? The day we have Colby and I'm not even here. But he was talking about it and, and digging in uh, a little bit. And you certainly can appreciate all the reasons why he wants to do it and give it a shot. And he basically said, I feel like when I look at where baseball is and where I am right now, my best chance is going to be as a pitcher and realizing that, you know, even though I think defensively he's still incredibly versatile, he felt like the offense just wasn't keeping pace to give him that opportunity. And so why not go ahead and take a shot at it? I mean, I mean, for just about all of us, right? You go as long as you possibly can. And, you know, for me as an example, Example at the very end, I'm trying to be a side armor at 39 years old. Why? Because I just want to try it. I just want to. I want to get it out of my system. And if I get lit doing it, so be it. At least I can like walk away and say, "Man, that's it." Like for sure, I gave everything I had at every angle with every kind of pitch. And there's just not a place for you anymore. And I think everybody, you know, kind of wants to go through that. So I'm pulling for him. He's such a great guy, great family guy. And quite honestly, I, you know anytime I even thought about the possibility of working in the Braves booth, I've never even entertained it too much because I'm like, well, Frenchie's there. He's young. He's going to be there forever. And then quite honestly, I'm like, and if for some reason he didn't want to do it, Charlie Colbison going to slide in and do it anyway. So I don't even allow myself to think that it would be a possibility. So I hope he pitches for 10 years so I can have a job.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We've had uh, Murph on here and, and I've talked to Murph about this a lot of times. Uh, if Murph had retired about four or five years early when his career, when he, he had so many injuries, the knees, the back. I mean, he had days in Colorado. He couldn't even get on the field. You know, he had to go through so much. If Murph had retired when he left the Braves instead of accepting that trade to Philly, I think he'd be in the Hall of Fame now. He should be in the Hall of Fame anyway with two MVPs, but his numbers took a ding playing hurt. And you talk to him and go like, why'd you do it? And he's I just wanted to play. I love playing. I wanted to keep playing and and come back, show I could still do it. But he was just so driven, even though he had kids at home, you know, a lot of kids by then. He wanted to, uh, he he just couldn't stop playing, even though he was a shell of what he used to be. But there's so many guys that are like that. Other guys can walk away from the game like Barry Sanders. We're on the top of their peak of their powers. But those are few and far between. Most guys are, like you just said, want to do it as long as they possibly can and squeeze everything they can out of a career.
2: Yeah, think about Manny Ramirez. I mean, one of the you know one of the greatest hitters. I understand the PED stuff that was there, but the fact that he was playing in Taiwan, he was playing independent ball in Japan. We know probably more than anybody at least that I've ever seen that Ichiro Suzuki has the hardest time taking the uniform off. I'll see a video of him like pitching against high school girls in Japan, yeah. and he's getting after it. Like he's Buffalo not like you know he's just throwing it in there. <laughs> yeah, it's like what? you know, and I get it. Uh, and I and near the end, I was always told that guys were like you know buddies of mine that were already been retired, like, hey man, just make him tear it off you trying to go as long as you can, just so you know that, like I said, you can look in the mirror and I think Charlie's in that spot right now and say, you know what, these are things I wanted to try, gave it everything I have. And then when the game tells, you no, uh, you move on to the next thing.
3: Yeah. You'd have to ask himself that for the rest of his life. I mean, he came in not even training as a pitcher and through 94, you want to just get that question answered. Even if you don't get a good answer and you're done, let's just cross this off the list.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: As hard as it was for you to, uh, to go back and forth between Texas and leave the family in Atlanta how jealous do you think guys are that are in the same boat as you who aren't able to keep their toe in the game? Like you are, they have to go back for alumni things or whatever, but you're around a game every day. How much, how nice is that to at least experience a clubhouse from where you do?
2: Yeah, I feel really fortunate, you know, grinding. Uh, I was done pitching in, in 2013 in January and winter ball. And then I was fortunate to get some stuff with MLB.com that April freelancing like crazy and doing everything I possibly could college games, you know, radio shows, wherever I could fill in, like just kind of how I was as a player that continued. Like you're hustling, you're doing whatever you can. And so I think for some guys, if you have really good careers and you kind of want to be around, but you don't want to jump all the way in, that'll be a challenge because it eventually is going to catch up to you. Um, You can only tell old stories so many times, you can only be mad at analytics for so long. You got to adapt a little bit. That's just a reality if you if you want to be around it, whether you want to coach, want to be in broadcasting, whatever it may be. And then I was fortunate to get an audition for Fox when they launched, when FS1 launched. They launched at the end of 13. I, I auditioned for them in January of 14 and, and got to work for them. And got lucky. Almost kind of like the guys you were talking about, how the Braves would bring in guys, not have to pay them very much, but get a lot out of them. So I went to a spot that had, you know, Frank Thomas and other guys and bigger names. And then I got the job as well. I doubt I was making anything close to what those guys were making. But really got a chance to kind of develop myself as a broadcaster working for Fox and and doing studio for three years and doing national games for six years before I settled in with the Rangers. So, you know, I I definitely feel fortunate because I know how fickle this business can be, but I also I put the work in and, and I make sure I spend the time and I study broadcasting and I like it and I like talking broadcasting and I'm always asking questions to other broadcasters. Early in my career, especially asking like anytime we had a play by play guy on talking about his team on radio, I'm asking about his analyst and asking Al Michaels, Hey, tell me about your best analyst. You know, the guys that you like the most, whatever it may be. And, and as an example, he's one of the guys that sticks out. And he, he had said, you know, he's like, the best guys I've ever worked with are the ones that were willing to put their playing career behind them and their broadcast career in front of them. Like little things like that, that you'd pick up along the way to try to grind it out and hopefully stay employable.
1: Is there something about being a voice of a team or an analyst with a team, traveling with the team, being around the same guys, and feeling a little bit more like you're part of that team than it is when you drop in and do the game of the week for this team or that team, and, and don't really have that interaction with the players, as, especially as you get older and they don't even hardly know you, you know? Which I'm okay with, but yeah, so yeah, I would Not say, like the national you know, guys, you know, they don't, yeah, that
2: interaction. yeah, oh yeah, got you. So the yeah the local gig to me is the better one. You know when I when I interviewed with the Rangers, it was still Fox back then when all the regions were Fox, and I was still under contract with Fox to do national stuff. And I said, hey, I'd really like to take a shot at this Ranger job, and they allowed me to do it because it was still in the same Fox family. But I just saw that as something that would be a little bit more stable, uh, a little bit more. You know, that, that show that I was doing nationally in FS1 is no longer there. The uh, highlight show called MLB Whip Around, so that that went away anyway a couple of years later. So I feel grateful that I got out when I did. But there is something about. Digging all the way in on a team, being part of a community. I'm still not great about this, Eric. I don't know how many times you've been back like in the clubhouse when you're done. I'm still a little uncomfortable in the clubhouse I, just because I'm like, you know what, man? It's your place. Like, I, I'm not going to loiter. You guys got a ton going on. You got to answer questions from everybody else. And I'm just going to stay out of your way. If something comes up, I might ask you real quick and then I'm going to get out of there. So I don't bother guys much. I, I probably could be better at it, but I just rather I'd rather lean on the side of stay out of the way than ever get in the way. And so from that standpoint, while, yeah, I I will dig in on this team as much as possible, like I always do, I will also give their guys their space and let them prepare. I I rely heavily more, quite honestly, on the coaches. You know, I played with Sal Fasano, played with Eddie, like guys, you know, Walt Weiss is from my small hometown in New York, right? So it's just, to me, I'll rely on those guys because I'll get the information that I need without, you know, having to burn anybody to help kind of formulate opinions and go from there. But digging in and being part of the team stuff for me on the local side is much more of a draw Obviously, there's bigger money and, and everything else in national and more attention. I just, I prefer this kind of work, quite honestly, because it just, it's cozier.
1: Yeah, I would think so. And the familiarity and routines and the familiarity and all that, and getting to know a team, like you said, instead of uh, feeling like when you're talking about a player and you haven't seen him play every day and you're dropping in to do one game and you're relying on somebody else is what they're telling you about that player. But what you were talking about there, I would think that this Braves team is as good, if not better than any To do that, to talk to Sal Fasano, to talk to Walt Weiss, when Wash, when he was here. But, I mean, look, Eddie Perez and Snit, just to get information about these guys, because they're going to tell you unfettered. They're going to tell you the truth. And they're all so easy to talk to and engaging and want to talk about the team.
2: Yeah. That part's nice, man. Cranny, too. We had him on our radio show. Cranny, yeah, he's great. I know, and I i don't know if we had ever met before, but so he's on the show, we're talking, and then I got his number and texted him after, and my goodness, he was just incredible.
1: Sites is great. Sites are awesome.
2: Yeah, so those relationships, to me at this point, it's not to say the players' ones aren't important, but those are probably more important to what I do now. You know, I played with Marcel before he was ever a big leaguer. There's no way he remembers it, but we were on the same Dominican team, like, in 2012. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, he don't remember it. <laughs> you need to ask him.
2: He wasn't even a big leaguer, but he was a star in the DR that year. Like he was putting up big numbers. Him and Gene Segura both. I hadn't heard of either one of them at that point. And they were crushing it uh, in the DR. And so it's cool to see. And Eric actually, the new bullpen coach, Eric was also on that team. And so, but I was in and out quick. The super old guy I mean, was 39, dude. A super old guy there, the old gringo that probably nobody who that what the heck is this guy doing here? But um, so yeah, we'll look forward to revisiting maybe that.
3: I played with uh, Bartolo in Oakland and had to reintroduce myself to him <laughs> oh, okay. later on when I, yep. <laughs> when I came to the Mets.
2: <laughs> That's about how it goes, which is all right, man. It's all, it's all in good fun. But yeah, it's, uh, it seems like an amazing group. Alex is is really good. So we'll pinch ourselves, man. We'll pinch ourselves a little bit about this whole deal, man.
1: Alex will blow you away, man.
2: Yeah, he, he's been great. And uh, when the whole thing even started potentially coming up, my wife's like, there's no way, right? It's not going to work out in a way. Like we're so used to nothing really, Too nothing, to nothing going our way. We had a long career, but it was just jumbled, man. And so the idea that there's any stability in our life, that's not really what our life has been about. I keep telling people, man, that 30 years in the game, 19 as a player, 11 as a broadcaster. I spent one month living in my primary residence during the season. I bought a house in Houston in 98 and I moved in like September 1st and got traded that off season. And so like, that was it. That's the only time I've been in my own bed, waking up, going to work, and then coming back to my bed. I
3: did that exact same thing with Seattle. I closed on a condo and got put on waivers about two <laughs> months later. <laughs>
2: it's, it's a good time. This game's awesome, but it is. But so that'll be a nice change for sure. Somebody's like, Oh, how far are you from the ballpark? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe, you know, 40 minutes without traffic. Who knows with traffic? Oh, it sounds like a lot. I'm like, it's a lot closer than Dallas. It's kind of how I look at it, man. It's a lot closer.
1: Sal Fasano, how well do you know him?
2: So we played together in the Yankees and the Minor League system, and then I faced him. Uh, and I told Gretchen, our producer on TV, and I found the video. I said I hit him twice in a game one time. <laughs> I only had one start where I punched out ten. It happened to be that game. It was the last night game at Old Tiger Stadium, and somehow and he, I think he got a hit in his first at bat, and then I dinked him the next two times. And so, uh, yeah, got to throw him a little bit, and so I look forward to certainly reconnecting and catching up with him.
1: He is something else, man. I talk to him sometimes, and I'm just like, it's amazing somebody hasn't hired him to manage. I'm glad they haven't because he is uh, – and I think he likes doing what he's doing, staying kind of out of the spotlight. But, my God, he's a smart guy.
2: He was good, man. It's like throwing a pillow. I mean, those hands were unbelievably soft.
1: All right. Hey, listen, we've kept you a long time. really appreciate the time, man. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you and when Brandon and Booth together. It's going to be great. I think the Braves – Keep hitting home runs with the broadcasters they hire, man. I know a lot of teams uh, would love to have either one of you, but uh, that's going to be a great combination. I think Brandon's going to make that easy easy transition for you. I'll see you down spring training, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, it feels like, yeah, I'm actually going to go down here uh, in February early on when position players report just to get some work done. And then we have our games at the very end. I think the first game is March 20th. That'll be on Bally's. but I told you this before, but I love your guys pod. It's hugely helpful to me to catch up. Like I'll hear something. It kind of puts me down a rabbit hole, doing a little research and catching up because there's some things that I'm not going to be able to find out on my own. So I'm looking forward to listening all season long.
1: People out there would ask that don't understand, why the hell Valley doesn't do, and they're not the only ones that do this, why they don't space out the spring training game so that they can see some of these young kids play early on. Yeah, I'm okay but with it. I know it's money. <laughs> and, yeah, they have to do well, them together. To me, <laughs> go,
2: go down for, like, I saw the Tiger schedule was posted the other day, and it was like March 7th, March 11th, March 19th. I'm like, oh, they're just, what are you going to do, go back and forth or stay there the whole time? So I like that it's four games uh, selfishly uh, over the last week or so.
1: All right. Hey, it's been a pleasure. We appreciate it. You guys are going to enjoy this, dude. I'm telling you. That's it for us. 755 forever, and we are out. Don't forget, email us if you want to sponsor us or go to the website and buy some merch. We need the money. Later.